Well, depending on where you are in the world, there's uh, lots of different things. So where I am in Australia, this week in the middle of January, fairly COVID is still fairly under wraps, which is great. But, uh, you know, it's January. We're coming out of our holiday, our big summer holidays. Kind of like January is when most people would take their four weeks for the year. So we're two weeks in and, you know, work is is back. People are going to the city. I've had to go to the city a few times for work. But the other thing that's coming back is, is sports, which oh, I'm just not a sporty person. Uh, but what I do love, I love my kids and they love sports as much as I love them. So if that makes sense. So it's an intense amount of love from me to my kids and then onwards to their sport. It's not really a cyclical thing. Uh, and what it means is that the lads go training, so they're obsessed with basketball. I think I've mentioned this on here before. So my boys are obsessed with basketball, and they're quite good at it. And they they play for a, a local um, league that happens around the area that we play called the Bellarine. And then they play for like it's like a county team, and they kind of, they've just went from like on the on the tens to now they're in the, on the fourteens. But that means two nights a week training and then it means two nights a week playing games. And because of where we live and Australia is a big place and everything's well spaced that the, the county games equivalents are, they're well spread out. So you're talking two and a half drive, a two and a half hour drive each way. Now that's an exaggeration. The furthest place would probably be about a two hour drive away. But they happen like every other weekend. Then training's a good 40-minute drive away. The games are, are intense. And that was fine when they were under 10s. And there was, let's say, a anxiety level of about 4 for me because I've never been a sporty person, ever, ever. I pretended for a few a few times when I first moved to Australia to be into soccer, but it never, it never stuck. But where this anxiety inducing element comes into it is and this may be really common for most listeners but it's it's new for me is when you are a parent and you're taking your kids to these sporting events you know the community runs so there's a there's an expectation that you chip in and like i don't mind doing any of the chipping in driving around kind of picking up stuff and doing that type of thing but when it comes to being an officiator so being a linesman doing this in, in basketball the parents are expected to do um school board so one person from your team i want to say person i mean adult one adult from your team one adult from the opposition's team they sit at a shared desk there is a um like a, a little box with some buttons on it that actually controls the school board that everyone sees in the stadium and then there's usually like a laptop where you need to write down all the points that were scored who they were scored by uh, you need to write down all the felds who was felled um, all, all of the details all the data that happens on it needs to be entered into these spreadsheets now if you're someone like me who has paid absolute zero attention to any sport to then be thrown in and to sit with like i, I get i get <laughs> yeah, anxious being around kind of regular people who are into stuff that i'm not into so if you're not into the things i'm into then i can weird myself out and kind of 
have an internal monologue in my head saying, oh, you've nothing to talk about here, Darren. What, what, you've nothing in common with these people. So when Friday nights are all around and I pull up to the stadium and I'm thinking, if I get pulled up to sit at the scoring desk, it is gut-wrenching. It's just gut-wrenching because I know nothing about the sport. I have to depend on kind of, it's almost like you're, you're working out a different language like me and my mate Fergal Bradley lived in Germany when we were uh, when we were 19 and neither of us had ever spoken any German to that point the only expression that we knew was unbeseen which means a little bit oh, we knew bitter which was like um, thanks but unbeseen was the only kind of expression that we knew so we'd go into recruitment agencies and we'd sit down and the person interview us, interviewing us would say Sprecher Sie Deutsch, which means do you speak Deutsch? And we'd say, I'm be seen, while giving that kind of like wavy hand expression. And then it didn't matter what they said next, because then we'd just say, uh, and <laughs> pretend like we didn't understand it. And they continue, and they'd presume that we know enough to get by. Well, really, all we had demonstrated is that we knew one phrase, and that got us jobs in these factories all over Nuremberg. Anyway, the reason I mention that is that's how I feel when I'm the scorer at these basketball games i'm kind of looking for reactions i'm hovering over things to watch someone almost correct me so i can fill in the right thing it's just stress inducing and we're back in there now the reason i'm probably extra aware of all this is because i am i was looking forward to today's interview with russ bradbird so russ is known for his book patty on the hardwood russ is a um an american writer basketball coach and fiddler uh he, patty on the hardwood is often talked about by uh kevin burke as one of one of his favorite books it's a it's a fantastic read so when myself and russ started emailing back and forth and lining this up i was pretty excited because you know it's the two two of my main worlds colliding with the basketball from the kids and then my love of the music and I, I was very interested to see how they kind of reconcile each other um before we get into it i just want to say a huge thanks for anyone that went over to patreon in the last little while like tom frederick for example uh lovely coincidence there tom actually became a patreon um before christmas but we hadn't we'd already recorded the patron saint um ins and outs for those episodes and uh, the coincidence that happened there was when he we were emailing back and forth and i said i'll get you make sure that we write to the powers that be and get you a patron saint name he asked her to be the patron saint of of um, wooden spoons or whittling spoons and i thought oh it wanted mad that's such a mad coincidence because over christmas that's what me and my kids did i bought uh, my two boys some pen knives their first pen knives and we just got some sticks from the woods and we sat at the cabin that we we're staying in and put on a bit of music and we'd sit it was brilliant like for for hours maybe not hours on a stretch but like we go 40 minutes stop get distracted by something for 10 15 and before you know it, we're sitting back whittling away and uh yeah so thanks tom if you want to be a sound lad like tom and become a patron saint please do because that's how this podcast continues to grow and means me and dom can show up every week and you know put all the work get paid for all the work that we put into this which is a, a huge amount to do that just head over to patreon.com forward slash baloney pilgrims there's a link in the show notes at the very bottom everywhere we post there's always a link to the patreon site so just click on that how it works is like this 
there's a couple of different tiers. So like the lowest tier is two dollars an episode, <clears throat> and if you select some the two dollars a tier episode, it just means that every week that we release a, an episode, you get charged. But they don't charge you each week because a lot of people don't like to have little bits taken out of their account. They just charge once a month. So when the month finishes up, if there was um, four episodes that month, that's what you get charged for. That for me and Dom is huge. The small bit of regular income that's coming in there means that we can look at the bank account, look at our partners and our families as well, and know that we can show up each week and continue to create this podcast. So thank you so much for the patrons that are there at the moment. And we're really asking for you to go across and maybe chip in a few dollars. If you do love this podcast and you really feel like you get something out of it each week, be great if you could go over there and uh, show us that by uh, chipping in a few dollars to make it happen right so i don't think there's any other admin stuff i think let's just get into it enjoy Russ Bradbrett, thank you for joining us on the Baloney Pilgrims. How are you? I'm delighted to be here, Darren. Thank you a lot. Uh, what did we just hear? Well, <clears throat> that was the West Fork Gals. And when I, uh, my first time in Belfast, uh, first time in Ireland, I went on holiday with a great friend of mine, a guy named Barry Pierce. And we wound up in Belfast. It was 2001, I guess. 
and uh, you know we, we were going around to sessions and uh, wound up in wound up uh, you know in the big city and you know most of them I would just sit with my fiddle on my knee you know I was an old time player that was on vacation and uh, in Belfast a man named Andy Dixon played in the midst of the session you know I was sitting there waiting for uh, the boys of Blue Hill or, or the Irish washerwoman and. Uh, but then Andy Dixon played uh, the West Fork Gales, and I could join in. And suddenly it was like I had a a, a window into, uh, you know, I just it was like a safety net. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, a few a few years later, a year later, I found myself in Tralee, County Kerry, Ireland, um, where uh, you know I'd taken that job coaching basketball, and I was going. At that point, I had I knew I was going to be there for eight months. So rather than drag my fiddle out to the sessions and annoy everybody. I thought, you know, the basketball coach in me sort of came out and I thought, I better go around and scout the sessions. You know, in Tralee, there's not so many sessions, but I found one at uh, at Betty's Pub and I went to listen uh, one night and the, a fellow there named uh, Kieran Dalton, who's a tremendous musician, but near the end of the night, he took out a, a five-string banjo, which is not an Irish banjo, you know, the American... Uh, the American banjo. He took uh-huh. out his banjo, and he and he played West Fork Gals, and something yeah. sort of clicked. And so I thought, if I ever see that fella again, I'll have and wound up seeing him on the street a few days later, and sort of accosted him. And that was sort of my. So that tune has been, uh, I, it has sentimental value to me. It's sort of been a, you know, sort of a passport into the Irish music scene. Do you know? Do you know where it's from originally? What's its origins? It's a, it's a central West Virginia tune. And so it was uh, uh, people like French Carpenter and uh, Wilson Douglas and Franklin George. Franklin George just died maybe two years ago in his uh, upper 90s. And so it's a central West Virginia tune. And at that time, I was going to West Virginia every summer for these music festivals and camps and that kind of thing. So it was it was one that now how it got into the Irish uh, repertoire. I'm not entirely sure, but it still gets played in 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 Belfast, even when uh, even when I moved there a few years later. And when you're when you're hearing it in Belfast, does it have like an Irish lilt to it, or does it kind of still have that West Virginia swing? I I don't I don't hear it as an Irish tune at all, and so it's funny no. to me that that it, that it got in. And and I know in in Belfast, you know, the Irish, you know, the American old time players would might play a tune till it's beat to death. They might play it, you know, 15 times around, you know, for for 10 minutes. But yeah. the Irish always seem to play it, you know, three or four times and on to the next tune. And that one seemed to get played with uh, a G tune called the Barlow Knife, which is also sort of a standard, but I just don't... Yeah. I could follow uh-huh. along the Barlow Knife, but I, did, I didn't want to torture you any more than I had to here. That's all right. Barlow Knife's one of the tunes I actually can do on the on my five string. <laughs> Bel- Belfast, that, that, aw- Belfast awaits you then, Darren. Uh, it's the Barlow Knife that used to be a. Was that? Am I right in thinking that it used to be an old advert? The tune of was it was a was an old. Oh jeez, I don't know. You know that's a that's a good question. I'm not sure I how think, they got how they got paired together. Yeah, and the playing the tune for maybe twice, three times through, and then pairing it with the other one. It was. Did the the RS session play the tune a lot, like, many times through, like you would in a, like an old time session? Or oh no, it, no, yeah. just, just I mean the only place I've ever been in Ireland that or, or Chicago where I'm sort of a regular in the summers, but the only place I've ever been in an Irish session where they'll really dig into a tune the way we do in old time music is at at the Garrick in uh, in Belfast where where your man Barry Kerr plays and. 
Desi Adams and, and the brother, the fellow they call the brother, and uh, they, they'll, they will get lost in the tune there and, and play it six or seven times through, eight times through. Uh, but, for, but for some reason, it's become sort of the standard. Now, whether it's because of uh, the recordings, the early recordings where it was played three times through, or if it's for the dancers, I've never known, but it's, it's, it's one of the things I, uh, the, there's a lot of pluses and minuses to both Irish and old time, and one of the things I really enjoy is when you dig into a tune deeply and get lost in it for, you know, for a long time. Yeah, I was actually I was thinking about um and look we're going to get into Paddy Paddy Jones that is in in a lot more detail but I was um just because we're talking about this I was watching that there's a YouTube clip where he's talking about the Driocht and the um O'Keefe and how they if you're playing dances for 15 hours straight from 10 p.m. in the evening to 7 a.m. in the morning and you're playing whatever your handful of tunes even if it's a, a mighty fist lot of tunes you're still going to get bored within the within the process and you're going to find new ways to express things and you're going to need to keep yourself entertained and i think i think that's part of what i kind of like about old time music too and i also remember talking to um Quivina Rilla about that as well and just you know playing a tune to death and once it's dead it starts to relive if you keep on looking for new ways for it to express itself like it's you can't you can't really play it to death you can play, play well, new life into it i i think i think in in my feeling is and you know of course everything i'll say today will be just my opinion but my feeling is that in, in old time there's sort of this trance that the players can sort of fall into and that it's it seems to be slightly more to me about the group sound and the group falling into the trance and there's a little more room for very like if you don't play the tune the same way in old uh as the fellow you're playing with in old time it's not such a big deal or mm-hmm. i've noticed that in an irish session if if i happen to play a tune slightly different than the person leading the tune that people might comment afterwards and say geez you've got a slightly different b part than i do and uh, I, I think old time sort of lends itself to more uh it's in some ways it's a wider path and i i feel like in 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 old time it's much more about the group sound and i mm-hmm. think with 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 irish it's it's uh it seems to be more um it, it seems to be more about uh playing playing the same literally playing the same notes as much as you can yeah. in the sessions and i find that like I, I often go to bluegrass sessions because there's not a whole lot of old time sessions where i am and there's more bluegrass and that's kind of almost an in-betweener as well where there's a a stickler for the actual notes and it's a little bit about the community but you need to shine then as an individual which adds another layer of complexity and and often nightmarish complexity to it as you know in old time there wouldn't be the solos that there are in bluegrass there'd be a big division in the states between the old time and, and the bluegrass people it's 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 a little bit strange but i've always sort of been in the old time camp Mm. it's i think maybe it's kind of like how like here as i'm sure it is in the states often that you get the the celtic banner and you would have whatever where it's welsh and scottish and irish all in together where and it happens with the bluegrass and the old time in australia i think it just you need to if you don't have a huge market you need to get all people that are kind of fairly similar in one place to have a good time. Well, that, I think that's one of the interesting differences to me, and it's one of the great appeals of Irish, is that to me, Irish, in you know, I'm in Chicago in the summers, uh, but Irish feels like much more of a living tradition 
uh, in much of the United States, where I think old time is somewhat of somewhat of a manufactured tradition, at least in Chicago. You know, whereas in, in Irish, there's people playing whose you know fathers played and grandfathers played, and that have been playing all their lives. And I think old time, in some ways, is is not quite as is not quite as organic. I, and I know that in Chicago, if there, if there's an old times weekly session, I certainly don't know about it. Whereas there's there's ongoing sessions that have been going on for decades in Chicago for Irish music. Yeah, I, I was fascinated because like because I'm actually coming to Irish music knowing a bit more about old time. I was fascinated when I started to understand. I think I found out about old time and the old time jam session really being a post World War II phenomenon and. To a large extent, it's kind of like, as you said, maybe manufactured to some extent, and it was a need for people to come together, and it was harking back to an older time. And, you know, I was always kind of looking at that jam with relation to the Irish session, and not that I knew much about it, but I hadn't realized that the Irish, that kind of Irish pub session was a fairly modern um, phenomenon as well, that maybe in part maybe came back through England where a lot of immigrants had gone to England or America and then they try they they hang out with with people that they from back home and they play music so then the pub became much more of a the epicenter for the session which yeah, kind of my, starts to yeah. for me that mirrors a little bit of what's kind of happened with um like obviously there's big differences but it mirrors a little bit what happened with old time to, to some extent like there's still the the traditions the West Virginia style or the Kentucky and there's the local kind of pockets of of styles like you would have in Ireland, but then the the jams of the sessions is when things become a little bit more um, more open. That's right, and 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 for both of them, of course, it's the dance. You know, they were originally, you know, the intent of it was for for dance, and so like you know, I know in America, I know I know that the tradition. I'm sure you're going to get emails from people in 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 West Virginia and and, uh, and Western North Carolina, they'll say, this dance has been going on for over 100 years. But in much of America, the, the you know, contra dance particularly is sort of a newer scene, and, and uh, the square dances have been revived. Mm-hmm. Um, where, and, and, uh, and I do think that's my understanding as well, is that, that at one time in Ireland that the, the playing was happening in people's kitchens, and there's, I, I think, you know, as as both places got modernized and industrialized, people began to turn their nose up at sort of the folk. It's not seen as uh, sophisticated, uh, sophisticated city type music, and as sure. more sort of see, seen as more hillbilly, or or in Ireland, I think you would call it culty, mm-hmm. you know, that that kind of which 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 is very directly re- related to what Patty Jones is up to, and I guess what we'll be talking about. So, Russ. You mentioned you spent a lot of time in Chicago in summers. You're originally from Chicago, is that right? I, I am, and my, my mother was from a very small town in Wisconsin, and my father was a Philadelphia guy, but when they got married, they, they moved to Chicago. And Chicago has always been, a lot of people don't know this, but it's always been a great mecca for folk music, but in a strange way. You know, first there was the, the migration of, of, of African Americans from the South that brought the blues up, but also hillbillies. You know, there was a radio station called WLS that had fifty thousand watts of, of power, and they would, uh, they broadcast a Saturday night barn dance for many years, starting in the nineteen thirties, and it sort of popularized uh, country and hillbilly and, and old time music throughout the throughout the airwaves, and it gave people from 
you know, that part of the world uh, sort of a home on Saturday nights, the WLS yeah. barn dance. And then, and then, of course, soon after that was the influx of Irish immigrants that brought their music. And so I, uh, Chicago has always, believe it or not, been, for, for, particularly for a big city in America, it's always been a great uh, town for folk music. And then on top of that, you've got the, the old town school of folk music where people like John Prine and, and uh, Steve Goodman and you know, musicians like that kind of and got their sort of big, big Bill Brunsey sort of got the blues player sort of made a name for himself through the old town school. Yeah. So did you, did, were you kind of like, did you go up in the city or like, I don't really know I Chicago did, that well, I've actually never been yeah, there. Yeah, very much, very much the city. I went to Chicago public schools for 11 years and, um, and also as a, as a kid, uh, there was a radio program called the Midnight Special, and that was a sort of a folk music radio program that was that went on for years and years. I don't think it's a, it was on the classical station, which of course was odd, but uh, but the Midnight Special, the radio program went on for for years and years. And so my first exposure to folk music was through that radio station, the Midnight Special. And my mother was a classical flute and piano player. But there on the there on her shelf, Darren, she had uh, maybe eight or ten records that were not classical, and it was Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and right. Big Bill Bru- Big Bill Brunzi and Josh White, and that kind of and uh, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. So sort of the bluesy and but folksy yeah, kind of yeah. stuff, and I got I got very interested in it, uh, you know, through those those eight or ten records on her shelf. And was was Dad? musical not at all but <laughs> but he but but he did, but he didn't turn his nose up at, uh, at it and and when my mother wanted us all there was there was four kids and we all had to take piano lessons and 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 pick an instrument and so my I can't remember if I picked it myself or not but I imagine when I was about 10 the violin was thrust into my lap and my grandfather who was a, a newspaper man uh, in small town Wisconsin a journalist and but played classical violin, you know, more like quartet. You know, there wouldn't have been enough for a symphony, but more quartets, and he could yeah. read music. And I don't think he was a great player, but but I think I think it's sort of uh, my mother. I think was tickled that I would play my grandfather's, in, you know, the, 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 play the same instrument as my grandfather. Mm-hmm. And she led the the push for music in the house. Yes, and I didn't the like kids. it. Yeah, I didn't like it, Darren, because I, you know, I was a little bit hyper, and I wanted to go out and play baseball or basketball or touch football with my with my friends. And so, the the rule was when I when I turned when I turned thirteen, I could quit if I wanted to. So from right. about the ages of ten to thir- thirteen or fourteen, something like that. I, I guess thirteen when I when it was time to go to what we call high school. I don't know if you'd call it secondary school, mm-hmm. but. When it was time to go to high school, I quit. And there's a certain stigma, you know, if you're trying to be an athlete, you know, and walking down the street with a violin. It was just sort of this stigma uh, in popular culture that, you know, it's a sissy who plays the the violin. And so I didn't touch a violin from the ages of about 13 to maybe 33, and uh, which is not an uncommon story of a, 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 a – well, it's not an uncommon story for a great fiddler to put down the fiddle for a while – but yeah. I, what I regret is I really missed my formative years. You know, I missed, you know, sort of my adolescence when I could have really made great strides. But the, the truth is I didn't like classical music, and I still don't really care for classical music. And the biggest thing, Darren, I sort of learned this the, 
uh, by accident is I had a friend who went to the Old Town School for harmonica lessons, and I thought, what, but you don't have to learn the, you didn't have to learn to read the music, and it didn't yeah. occur to me. And in retrospect, now I think just because of the way my my little brain works, <laughs> that, that uh, I, I uh, it, you know, I think it's a long way from the. It has to go from the, your the page, to your eyes, to your hands, to your brain, to your ears, and it just for me that's a long way. And it's I, a lot and of translating. Yeah, when I learned that I when I, when I learned that I could play without, you know, how did Stevie Wonder do it, and how did Ray Charles do it, and how did Blind Ed Haley, the fiddler, do it, and or or, or Turlico Carolyn for that matter, and mm-hmm. and I, I think when it when it occurred to me that I didn't have to read the music, it was like uh, it just it was almost as if the clouds opened up, and uh, so it started with trying to learn the harmonica, and then so in, in my um, Early 30s, I thought, well, let me let me try, and and it, I wasn't very good. I'm still not very good, but I wasn't very good right away. But I didn't go through that awkward first six months where you sound like you're strangling a cat. <laughs> yeah, oh, so it, did, you said you were 30. So that's you you dropped it from when you were going into high school to when you were 30. Yeah, I think from about 13 to 33, I didn't didn't touch didn't touch a fiddle. Yeah, it, it, like I think we spoke about this before. I've got um, twin boys that are eleven, and they're they're obsessed with sports. They're obsessed with basketball being their their main thing. And this year was the year of all right. You're you're learning an instrument, and it comes from knowing the path that they're on and the payoff that comes way 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 down the road. And they're doing exactly what you had said. Like they're not enjoying it it's a chore um but i kind of i want to i want you've probably got me at a, at a bit of a, a weird time because sports in australia is starting to come back because we've got on top of covid so basketball um training has started up again so that's going to be like two nights a week training two nights a week playing so four nights a week driving all over the place it's very organized sports focused and i'm just i get so frustrated with the pedestal that sports gets over over art a long time so i know this is exactly going to lead into so many things that we'll end up talking about with with you and being a, a basketball coach but do do you remember when you were playing as a as a kid like what do you remember what you felt about it well yes and, and uh, I, I do remember that as i got better in basketball i was never a very good basketball player at all, but I loved it. And I do remember, though, as I got better, it got more fun. And I don't think there's any question uh, of the crossover, you know, with, with music is it's no fun when you're, it, it starts to become more fun as you get, as you get better at it. But there's also the odd phenomenon, you know, in, especially in Chicago. Now, I don't, I imagine it's not true in Australia and, or, or in Ireland for sure, but in in you know in the big cities in America, there's a pickup pickup game culture where you just show up at a certain time. Often it's a set time, but you show up at the playground and they choose teams and you play. And, and then then you're with a group and you realize you're no good at this, whatever skill it is, maybe dribbling with your left hand, say. And then you've got to go back and practice that on your own. And then you come back to the group again. Well, in my experience, that really is mirrored in the Irish session where. You come together with a group and you think, God, everybody can play that tune except for me, or I'm not nearly as good as that fellow there. I've got to go home and practice. 
and 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 then you go home and you know work on your tune some more and then come back the next week and and it can be disastrous where you can get embarrassed in a basketball game and discouraged you know or angry and then you know you either give up or stop or or you stay with it but I, but i've i've noticed there's a big you know basketball is one of the few sports that you can go practice by yourself you, you, I would imagine you can't play Aussie rules football by yourself. I think hurling, Irish hurling would be difficult by yourself. And I imagine, but, but basketball is one of the few who can really get better with, with just, just on your own. Um, I, and, and, I remember my dad, when I first picked up the instrument, constantly saying to me, Got play with other people, play with other people. And I was constantly thinking, oh, like, I'm not ready, I'm not ready, I'm not good, like, I'm not good enough. This is the internal monologue here. And when I finally did start playing with other people, that that that's the biggest learning curve you can have so i can understand the appeal with kids too because you can practice on your own with basketball practice on your own and then very easily play with other kids and the the realities of what you're trying to practice on your own become apparent instantly does that make sense i, th so I like think I think that's very true, Darren, but I would also say there's a danger to only doing one and not the other. So I, I think if, if you only played in the in the pickup games with, you know, nine other fellas in basketball, you'd never get as good as you could be. And if you only play by yourself, you'll never get as good. And I think so I think you have to strike a balance. And it's something I think about all the time, because in New Mexico, guess what? There's no Irish sessions here. Uh -huh. And then I get to Chicago and there's sessions, you know, get to Chicago for the summer or go when I've lived the times I've, you know, I've lived in Ireland on four different occasions for, you know, for maybe three years total. And then there's sessions just all the time. And if you're not careful, you only play the sessions and don't play by yourself and so i th i think there has you have to strike a balance and so here the, the balance that i'm always striking is i play by myself for irish you, you you've heard my my friend dennis play i there's plenty of old time music between me and dennis but i have to play the irish music by myself by myself learn tunes and then i get to chicago and you know and, and try out what i've been working on for nine months mm -hmm. yeah um ross I'd love to, if we could have a tune, what I'd love to do is if we can stuff for a tune or a set of tunes, and then I'd actually like to ask you a, a little bit about basketball because that would really help framing the, the the questions after that, which is going to come down to your time in Ireland and your coaching of the Chile Tigers and your relationship with Paddy Jones. So do you think that's something we could do? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just play a set of sl slides for you that, that Paddy Jones taught me. Lovely. Thanks, Russ. Okay. All right, here we go.
Thanks so much for that, Ross. That was great. Thank you. So I know basketball is not exactly, you know, what this podcast is about, but I'm interested in your journey with basketball and, and how that kind of entered into your life. So you, you're a young lad growing up in Chicago. What role was basketball playing for you? When did that start coming into your life? Well, j- just like with Irish music, I, I started a little bit too late to ever be very good. Uh, it was in about... Uh, Eighth grade, I guess, I, I sort of discovered it. And uh, although Chicago is a basketball hotbed, but my own particular neighborhood wasn't. But then went to, I, when I went to high school, it was a integrated high school. You know, it was maybe 20% African-American kids. And I, th- I didn't know this at the time, Darren, but I, found, I was just very intrigued with the African-American kids. And they were all great guys. And I think in retrospect... What I was part of what was appealing with basketball wasn't just the uh, game itself, but it was a window into black culture. Right. And so, uh, and I and I know it's the same for me now with Irish music. Is is you know the music has given me sort of a passport to understand Ireland and the and the Irish people. Well, that's what basketball I think did for me also. It just I think I think I'm curious about the world. And and what it did is sort of gave me this sort of portal to get into this uh, this world of African American culture, and not just the basketball part. But uh, in high school, I was obsessed with you know soul music, you know the Temptations mm-hmm. and the Spinners and the Stylistics and and uh, you know that that kind of thing. So, what kind of years were you were you coming up through high school? What kind of decade were you looking at? If you're trying to to date me to, to, to age me I was, I guess maybe 1972 I started and 76 I finished yeah. and so uh, so yeah so just the early 70s but the high school I went to is there was a very much a 1960s feel to it you know the Vietnam War had just ended and uh, you know there was a lot of long haired kids and there was just a very sort of a peace and love kind of uh, atmosphere and the, 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 the high school I went to just by chance it was very integrated it was like the United Nations and uh, and uh, and everybody got along. Imagine that in America. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and when you were looking at basketball as a young lad, and you're looking at the African American kids and kind of 
because at the at the time, and I don't know a whole lot about the sport, but was it was it dominated by African American dudes then? Yes, but not not to the. I mean, the team, the basketball team, was of course not maybe not to the extent that it is today. Where you know, I think if I remember right, the the professional team, the Chicago Bulls, might have been half, you know, half African American, half white guys. But uh, um, you know, I think it's it's it has to do. It's it's the reason I always hoped that basketball would take off in Ireland. Is it's a poor man's game, and it's right. a, what do you, what know, do you mean by that? Well, it doesn't. You you buy the basketball and that's it. You don't need uh, you don't need all kinds of gear and helmets and shoulder pads and that kind of thing. It is it's 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 conducive to poor kids playing because you don't need yeah, okay. much equipment. Yep. And then, when were you more interested in playing? Um, like, were you kind of doing the the meetup type playing, or were you doing the more high school in the team kind of coming up that way? Well, a bit of both. I mean, it was, you know, this, there was, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, the, the truth, it's, it's a funny story, Darren. I wasn't, I was only good enough to make the high school team one year of my, and then, and then wound up making a college team for a few years too. I was a little bit of, I was a little bit OCD, you know, that obsessive compulsive. Sure. Yeah. I, I would find, find something that I liked and I would work at it compulsively. And so I've, I've been lucky that I've been able to channel it you know, in into uh, fiddling or basketball or, or writing, uh, it, could, it could have been worse. You know, it could have could have channeled it into uh, into whiskey yeah. <laughs> or, or or gambling or, yeah. or or organized crime. But I've 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 been lucky that I've been able to channel it into something you know uh, fairly healthy most of the time. So this might seem like a, a very simple question. And so, how how does someone that what I'm picking up is that you're saying you were good. You weren't a great player. You were you were good, good enough to be on on the teams at that level. How do you then transition to be a coach of such kind of prestigious teams? What like what's that journey? Well, you know the the comedian Woody Allen says those who can't teach, and those who can't teach teach phys ed. And I think there's a <laughs> and I think I think there's an element of I, I think in, in retrospect I, I didn't want to grow up. I mean it just seemed like. This is a way to stay around the game, and and to you know have a life in the game, and it just didn't seem like, you know, it was. I spent a lot when I was a basketball coach, particularly in college basketball. It was a lot of hours, but it never seemed it never seemed like work exactly. You know, you to sit and watch a basketball game, or to travel to a basketball game, or to evaluate you know videotapes of, of basketball players. But even even then. Even then, Darren, by by the time by the mid nineteen eighties, I'd been a college coach for maybe f- uh, three or four years, and I got rid of my television. I, I was just, I, I I was never the kind of coach. That we, I, I wanted to go home and listen to music, and I wanted yeah. to, I wanted to have or, and read books, and I wanted for me, I do better. I've I've found that maybe because of I'm a little bit OCD, is that I do better when I sort of balance my life out a little bit, and so. Pretty, you know, fairly early. At, at, you know, at one point, I was I was dating a, an opera singer. You know, my girlfriend in, in when I lived, I was living in El Paso, a border town, and dating an opera singer. And so I was around music f- from that all the time. And that's when I sort of started dabbling with the harmonica. Um, but but I think I, I but I think the reason I got into the coaching is it just didn't. It, I just was resistant to. I didn't want to sit behind a desk. I didn't think and. Um, I had I had a little trouble sitting still. Like I didn't watch much television as a kid, and I I used to think it was because I was such a good person. But now I know it was just I had trouble sitting still at that age. I couldn't sit sit still and watch television for very long. 
Yeah, but you, I, I don't know why I feel like I shouldn't ask this, but like it sounds like is it was it a absolute love for the game or is it a compulsion? I, I think it was I think it was both of those things, but also a feeling of wanting to belong, you know, to be on the team, which I think is very much happens to me in in, uh, in Irish music. Like, you know, we'll talk about Patty Jones in a bit, but for me, it's a it's a way to connect to people, and uh, it's a way to make friends and to be on the team, you know. And the team is we're all going to sit the four or six or eight or ten of us are going to sit at the session and. We're going to play together the same way we do. And so to be recognized, you know, where you come in with your fiddle and they know you and you're not too bad and they're going to let you play yeah. if you're not terrible. And it was, it was being part of things. But also, it was, I think there's, there's, you know, elements of masculinity of sort of trying to prove myself and, you know, to, to, to prove that I could, could do it and to prove that I was as good as these other fellas. And, and I never really was. And I'm still not in, in fiddling or... But there's a, there's an element of, of trying to prove that you can belong. Belong. I think in I do think in sports there's much more uh, potential for heartbreak because it's it's a competition and music at times it's a competition. If you go to the uh, the FLA or the All Ireland contest or something, but making a contest out of music is a terrible idea. And it's not it's never really. And and for me, I've, I'm not trying to make a living at it, and I'm not scoring points or trying to make a seat it's it's purely for enjoyment whereas i think basketball at first it was because i loved the game but then it became about money and glamour and prestige because i was coaching at a pretty high level you know it, mm-hmm. when i was a college basketball coach we'd we'd get 12,000 fans at, at at every match you know and and uh, uh you know so so I, I started off because of love the reason i started coaching I think was very, you know, I liked kids and I liked the game, but that wasn't why I stayed in coaching. And that became very discouraging after a while and was part of the reason I walked away from it. Yeah, it was definitely one of the things I picked up from um, Patty and the Hardwood was the the emotional turmoil that the sport caused, well, caused you, but I'm sure like that, that translates into, into what it would cause many, many people. I, I often think of it that way with, with sport, like looking at the kids and trying to explain losing to them, like, only one team wins. <clears throat> really, sport is a game of, of losing. And I, I don't really think people think about sports in that way. Like the majority of playing sports is losing. Am, am I right in thinking that? You're talking to one of the most least sporty people <laughs> in the world. So maybe well, I have I, that I, view. I, I, I've, I've pretty much had, you know, 99% good feelings and good times from the music. I mean, the the, the any heartbreak or anger or sadness it's an absolute minimum in the music i've gotten where darren i think i don't want to uh, give you advice on how to raise your kids but i've gotten where i think that the only purpose the main purpose for sports should be to teach kids what am i going to do when things go wrong and i lose and how do i react to things going badly because everybody reacts well when they win and it's 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 when you when, when things go badly and how you react that i think is the real important lesson and of course no one no one is interested in that lesson ex- except maybe except maybe except for me yeah. and of course and the higher level you get at you know the higher level there is a, there's more money and glamour and television and and those kinds of things but pretty quickly I, and i think in, in in retrospect that's why i connected with patty jones is i think he 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 had a you know a real sort of disdain for uh, the commercial aspects of the music, and and I, I've gotten where I, I do think it's a. I still think basketball is a beautiful game, but it's a little bit. 
I think it's a little bit like diamonds. Like diamonds are very beautiful, but the business of diamonds are, is really ugly. There's child labor and people being murdered and there's blackmail. And I don't know it really anything about the diamond business, but I think that that's true in, in basketball. The game is a beautiful game and everything else is all the dirt around the diamond. When I think that music in a very different way is, you know, I think that's one of the things that Patty Jones constantly talked about is, why, what's the purpose of the music and why are, why are you playing? And that made me really think about everything in my life, about you know, what's the purpose of, of playing basketball and, and why, are, why are we doing this in the first place? Yeah, the, the, it's, I suppose it's the business part of it, the, the Patty Jones idea of business behind it that kind of annoys me about sport, how it's kind of, I feel, and I'm probably going to upset 99% of our listeners, my listeners, that the sports industry has hoodwinked the world into believing that it means something. And I get frustrated when I look at, I think music actually does mean something. The art form means something. And if there was actually more focus, I don't know, maybe if there was more focus within the, the, the branding or the, the passion behind music on a, on a business scale, then people would give it more, more respect. I just, I, I, I'm always baffled uh, with how um, how prestigious sport is, and maybe that's because I live in Australia and it's a very sport centric um, yeah. culture. And I think maybe because it's not with the the new culture that's been in here since um, it's been colonised is is so young that sports is. I think they hang their hat on it so heavily, and it it it, it frustrates me no end. I, th I think that what sports has done in, in many societies is it's replaced religion. Not so much in that you'd worship, you know, Michael Jordan or, or whoever the Gaelic football stars, you know, Kieran Donaghy or that kind of way. But, but I, think, I think it's replaced religion. In, I think humans need ritual. And I think what, what the, the Sunday session does and the Monday session and the Tuesday session, you know, that, it's that kind of, you know, when I've lived in Ireland, I, I didn't have a job uh, other than the the coach at the time I was coaching basketball, which is only half a job in terms of time commitment. And I think what humans crave is ritual and getting together as a group and having a group sort of uh, goal in mind. And so I think that there's that, that, that I think that that's part of it is a sport gives us this ritual that every Sunday we get together and it's, it's, it's ecstatic, you know, like mm -hmm. mass. Well, I think that's what's happening in an Irish music session as well, mostly for the players and for some of the listeners. And I, and I do think that, that the business thing really undercuts the euphoric um, joy of it. You know, you, a few weeks ago, I, I've never met Joni Madden, but I'm a great admirer of Joni Madden. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, there's, I don't think there's many people that are doing what she's done is she's really succeeded on the business side. Uh, well, 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 Jerry O'Connor in Dundalk is another example. He's a great fiddle player in Dundalk. But, mm -hmm. but Joni Madden comes to mind because I've heard her on the podcast. She seems profoundly happy to me, you know, yeah. and, and, and yet she's, she's up to her armpits in the business side of things. And I think that that's the, I think that's the danger as you get, it's, it's, I think what Patty Jones always resisted and disdained. And I think, I, and I imagine that there's other, I, I know Johnny Moynihan, the, the, uh, I've met Johnny Moynihan a couple of times. He was in the, that sort of seminal group called Sweeney's Men. That was mm -hmm. one of the first sort of Irish folk uh, trad groups and and he was you know on the verge of making it big so to speak if you can make it big in irish music the way kevin burke and some of those fellows did 
he just walked away from it. I think it, it took him too far. Uh, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but my feeling was that it just took him too far from home. And home for him was just the music and not the not the glamour or the business side of things that he just... And so I think, for what, what, say, what Kevin Burke has done is he's kept his sanity while making a living at it. And I think that, I would imagine, no one has ever, no one has ever offered to pay me, but I think that would be a very difficult thing to do, to be a great player and, and still not get caught up in the business side of the music. I like that line, keep your sanity, but make a living at it. <laughs> that sounds well, I, like yeah. a, a motto to, to continue with. I'm not. I'm not. I'm surely. I'm not the only one to think that. And and I maybe your listeners would would disagree. Maybe Joni Madden's bitter and and depressed, but she sure doesn't seem so to me. Yeah, it, it's um, it, it's always going to be a a dodgy line to cross out, even just on a simple level. Like, so I work in advertising, and often I need to to find music to go with different ads, and I'll find a perfect piece, and it'll be a piece that I, it'll be. A, music i love and i know the artist is going to get paid handsomely for it but i know because i've taken the art that i appreciate and i've plugged it into the commercial world i've now tarnished it i've just i've just put a bit of poo on it <laughs> yeah well, well i mean another example is i don't know i don't know liz carroll well but I've, I've written about her and i've interviewed her and she's always struck me as like does she not does she not understand that she's the greatest uh, Irish fiddle player in the world like you'd think that she's you know working in an ice cream shop or something yeah. she's just you know completely without ego and and I do think there's plenty of that in in Irish music partly because you know you're not going to get filthy rich you're not it's not going to be like uh, 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 you know U2 and Bono and that kind of thing where it's going to be so difficult to keep your sanity but I think that seems to me that that's always the challenge is to to stay close to you know stay close to the it's for example, I, I teach uh, writing here at New Mexico State. Now, in a million years, I wouldn't want to double my salary and be an administrator. It would ta- it would it would take me too far from the books. Mm-hmm. I love the books. I don't love the paperwork and the and the staff meetings. And, and yeah. I think that would it seems to me that that would always be the challenge, whether it's Irish music or basketball or or, or writing. If you wouldn't mind, Ross, do you think you could give us another tune, and then we can. We can have a chat about your time in Ireland. Well, the, your time that is in the book, Paddy and Harwood. Yeah, good enough. You know what I think I'll do is there, uh, at the Irish sessions, there wouldn't be so many marches played. But once when I when I first moved to Belfast um, in 2012, I went to Madden's pub, which is sort of a music mecca. But it was a Monday night and it was January. And, you know, no one goes out. Everyone is still hung over from, from Christmas. And so I, I went and there was just the two musicians in the pub. It was Brendan O'Hare, the great flute player, and Shane McAleer, the fiddle player. And I didn't know who either of them were at the time. And then the, and then the, and the bartender. And I thought, geez, these guys are very good players to be playing by themselves. I didn't know that there was such a lull in the... But anyway, Shane played this... Uh, this uh, these two marches that I think I'll play now. Lovely, thanks, Russ. Okay, here we go.
Wow, fantastic. Thank you so much for that, Ross. Do, do you have the names for those? Yeah, yeah, those are, uh, I got those from Shane McAleer and his, his only uh, solo CD. And uh, the first one is The Pikemans, and the second one is Down the Glen. And I just, I, I knew you would ask me, so I thought, well, I better look up the origins. And it turns out The Pikeman was uh, written by a man named Carl, uh, Carl Hardebeck. And he was, uh, as you can tell from his name, a German father, Welsh mother, but had lived in Belfast for much of his life and composed tunes and became a sort of very staunch uh, Republican. But oddly, that, that first one, that first march, gets played in the Orange, you know, in the Orange Men marches yeah. from from time to time. So just sort of, I, I like it because I think it sort of reflects the complicated uh, complicated history of Belfast. But I'd never heard of Carl Hardebeck until I uh, this week I thought I better look this up in case in case Darren asked me, and I didn't know that it was a composed by a Belfast man. Yeah, I'd not heard of him either. I'll have to look it up, and I'll um, if whatever I can find, I'll put it in the show notes because I'm sure there's there's going to be other people that would like to know about that too. Uh, Russ, just before we move, like get to the bit where you, you actually moved to Ireland, just you, after you picked up the harmonica, what happened then? Well, I I'd, uh, I just thought uh, I hadn't picked up a fiddle in a while, but I just I bought a used fiddle for about two hundred dollars, and right at the, I was living in El Paso at the time. Then went back to Chicago. I was between basketball jobs, and I uh, went went down to the Old Town School of Folk Music, and somehow I got signed up for the wrong class. I I, I rang them and said, "Well, I played as a boy, but I don't know what class. I haven't picked it up in a long time." They said, "Oh, you need to be in our old time old time ensemble class." So I went the first day, and a man named Paul Tyler, he was there with Steve Rosen. They're both sort of icons of the Chicago folk music scene. They were calling roll, you know, and, and my uh, my name came up first because my last name was a B. They said, Russ, I don't recognize you from Fiddle 1 or Fiddle 2 or Fiddle 3. What are you doing here? And I said, well, the, the lady told me. Well, they started right in. I said, well, let's let's do a Soldier's Joy in D, everybody, a 1 and a 2. <laughs> and I was completely <laughs> lost and over my head, but I liked it. And I and I thought, geez, I must learn that. And and I, I got very interested in it and I started, you know, I was thinking I was dedicated. I was going to play 30 minutes every day. And mm-hmm. and, I, and I asked Paul Tyler, the, the uh, he turned out he was a basketball fan. And I asked him for, and he recommended a couple CDs. Do you know Tommy Gerald, who was sort of one, sort of one of the godfathers? He'd be maybe a cross between Seamus Ennis and, and Michael Coleman in the uh, American right. old time scene. He's yep. a very charismatic guy that, that really... Uh, influenced a lot of people so he gave me a Tommy Gerald CD and and but about six months later and then I, I'd heard a player named Reese Jones he was a young kid he was maybe 20 years old at the time and I thought that's what I want to sound like there was this kid named Reese Jones who wound up playing Irish music as well but right about six months after I started these lessons I got the job at New Mexico State University so I left all of it behind I'd had these maybe a dozen group lessons, and then there I was on my own. So I was more or less untaught and certainly had never had a private lesson yeah. other than once with Reese Jones. I, I remember going in my U-Haul. It's it's a 1,800-mile drive from Chicago to my town in New Mexico, and I took my U-Haul, which we'd call it you know, a, a moving truck. I don't know what they call it in Ireland or Australia, but uh, loaded up my U-Haul and drove the U-Haul to Reese Jones's. Uh, Reese Jones's uh, apartment and got a lesson and then, you know, kept the tape, which I still have today. And 
drove to New Mexico, and then I was stuck and had to find. There was a few old time players around, but right when I right after right when I got here, Darren, a, a man named Dermot Diamond, who took me years to meet Dermot Diamond, but he had been in teaching at New Mexico State on a Fulbright, and he had brought. He was a Belfast fiddler, and he had taught a lot of the guys here some of the basic Irish tunes. You know the the Boys of Blue Hill and the Irish Washerwoman and the Mary Blacksmith and those kinds of tunes that I, I still play. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I never, I didn't, it was years till I met Dermot Diamond, but that was my first Irish tunes was, was, was coming here. And soon after that, there was a writer here in town, a really great young writer. I think he's maybe the world's great undiscovered writer named Barry Pierce, the fellow who would take me on holiday my first time to, and he taught me some Irish too. He's a whistle player taught me some Irish tunes. And so I was dabbling in a little bit of Irish, but playing mostly old-time music and coaching basketball at New Mexico State. And most of this playing was on your own, I'd imagine. Yeah, and there was a contra dance here, and they didn't have a fiddle player. So I was immediately the fiddle player for the contra dance, which is like an Irish uh, Cayley, maybe, where you you just play for hours and hours. And so that was a good experience, even though I wasn't good enough to be playing in public yet. There I was, playing in, in public, and then met Dennis Daly, who you heard on that first uh, song. So I've been playing with Dennis now since since maybe 1995. Right. Um, but again, again, mostly mostly old time music. And then one summer after I'd quit, I re- got out of co- I quit coaching in 2000 to try to be a writer. And that summer, I was having a pint in Chicago with this Barry Pierce fella, and. Um, on a hand, you know, we had on a handshake deal. We said, "Let's go to Ireland. We're going to go to Ireland on holiday this summer." And so that was how it started. Is we went for about a ten-day holiday, mostly on bicycles, and I had my fiddle sort of wedged behind my bicycle. And and Darren, you you won't believe it, but we were there for ten or eleven days, and it never rained once. Wow! <laughs> and I, in I, retrospect, I, I, I remember that year. <laughs> Yeah, and it was—I think it was 2001. <laughs> and I, I could—I could probably sue Ireland for false advertising. And and, yeah. and I didn't know—I didn't know it at the time, but I thought, this is such a, this is a great place. I think I'll try to get a job here. But I know now that just because you have a good time on holiday, does it? You'd be a bartender in Bali if if it was, uh, you know, like like most of Australians would be, would be bartenders in Bali or mm-hmm. something like that. If there, there's just because you had a good time on holiday doesn't mean you should try and go there and get a job. But I started pursuing, you know, I was in the I went into the graduate school for fiction writing here, but started pursuing this idea of finding a job in Ireland that that was somehow going to make me happy. So, what what happened? Well, uh, I, when when I was over with with Barry Pierce and I'd met uh, we met an American friend of ours named Sean Ryan, who's a great whistle player and piper, and he was he was in love with this Clota, uh, lady named Clota Boylan, and they sort of took us around to the music scene. And at one of the pubs, Sean happened to he happened to have met Sean played college basketball at Notre Dame. Uh, he was a better player than I was, but but uh, and a, he's a better musician too, I suppose. But he had b- become friends with the Irish Olympic coach, an American named Bill Dooley. So Bill Dooley met met us at the session, and it was the la- it was maybe the second to last day of the session. And I told Bill Dooley, I said, I want to get a job here. I want to get a job, uh, you know, I, I want to uh, get a job coaching. And he looked at me like I was crazy. That you know, you don't understand. There's not there's only a couple jobs that pay, and it's the 
it's it's a, the worst level of professional basketball in the world. And are you sure you really want to do this? Because he knew, like, he had been a, a successful American coach before he became the Olympic coach. Yeah, sure. But 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 he mentioned my name later that year to the Tralee Tigers. They were the at the time they were sponsored by Frosties. You know, the we'd call them Frosted Flakes, but Kellogg's Frosties. So we were the Frosties Tigers, and he mentioned my name to the Frosties Tigers. And that spring, I'd graduated with a master's degree at New Mexico State, and the uh, the Frosties Tigers rang me and asked would I be interested in in coming to. And I thought, well, this will be easy. You know, you might you might know you probably haven't noticed, Darren, but there's a certain American arrogance where uh, you know we just sort of think you know well, I'll just I thought well I'll just go and I'm the American coach and I'll win the championship and I'll just come home after a year, yeah. and uh, and of course everything went wrong and we, things went terribly wrong and I, I I lost ten games in a row and we came in last place, but but pretty soon after pretty soon after going there I'd, I'd uh, you know I'd heard Kieran Dalton play that West Fork Gals and got immersed in the Tralee has a very limited session scene. But I found the places where they were playing four, maybe four nights a week, and then uh, at the Flaw, walking around with this Sean Ryan fella. Uh, he, you know, he he knew all the Irish players because he's a great player. And every we went to the Flaw in Listowel, my first month in Tralee, and he just asked everybody we met, "Do you know someone who uh, Russ, Russ has moved to Tralee? Do you know someone he could take lessons with?" And you know these certain names come up, and they said, "Well, you could, you could try Patty Jones." But I could tell there was a certain disdain for him that was almost as you know they would, they, you know they said, "Well, if you if you want, you know he's going to talk to you about the meaning of life and mysticism and and why we're here on Earth and what the yeah. purpose of the music is and you know and and you know and who wants to hear all that crap?" And well, well, I did. Yeah, your writer's ears perked right up. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they said, uh, because I was sort of, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I'd walked away from a lucrative job coaching basketball. and, and uh, But they sort of said his name the way, you know, that you might say outdoor plumbing. <laughs> you know, it yeah. wasn't, you know, it, it, he, was, he was clearly sort of a controversial figure because he thought that there was more to the, you know, he, that, that, that no one wants to hear any of that, of that crap about, you know, why are we here on earth and what's the meaning of life and, and they, people, you know, most people just want to play the tunes and have a have a laugh and have a pint with their mates. Well, I thought I've got to meet this fellow, and so I went went to the Cary School of Music to to meet Patty Jones. And so, what what was he like? What was your first impression then? Well, he he was he had a thick, you know. At the time, I thought he was about sixty, but it turns out he was actually only fifty three then which is younger than I am today, which seems very strange to me. But um, I, I think he would, you know, he, he, had a, he was living a very modest life. He taught one day a week in Tralee and one day a week in Castle Island and one day a week in Scarta Glen. And it was mostly children whose mothers, you know, made them, just as my mother did when I was a boy, whose mothers made them uh, take you know, take violet fiddle lessons. Mm -hmm. And I think that he was really, so we connected pretty quickly because, um, I, you know, my mom, my mommy wasn't making me do it anymore. <laughs> and I think that, I think it's exhausting to sit there and play the dawning of the day with seven-year-olds over and over again. And I think, you know, he could see that I was very keen on the music and was very dedicated. And so we immediately connected uh, in that way. But also by that point, I'd been playing old-time music for 
near for nearly 10 years. And I think had I met Patty Jones when I first started, I would have not had the patience for him. He's, he's not the kind, of, he wasn't the kind of teacher that, uh, you know, he was never good at doing the clinics where, you know, you, you teach the group of 15 people for a couple hours and they pay their $40 and then they're done. You know, with, with Patty Jones, it was, a, you know, he would often stress that the, the fiddle is an old person's instrument and that you had to sort of be in it, you know, for the long haul. And, uh, and uh, well, I was hoping to become an old guy. <laughs> that, 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 it, seemed, it still seems appealing to me. I mean, what are, the, what are our options? Since, and, I've, um, since, I've, read, since I've read that uh, quote in the book, like that really has helped me in my hours of, of tearing my little hair that I have left. Uh, that, uh, it's, such a, it's such a lovely premise that it's an old man's instrument. It's, it, 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 it's only going to become more rewarding. It's such a lovely yes. way of phrasing it. That's right, or or an old woman's instrument. But but sure, he, but uh, yeah, but and, but he was, uh, you know, he completely revamped everything I was doing. You know, the old time players sort of slouch their fiddle down at a forty five degree angle, and they sometimes hold the bow halfway up the bow. And he didn't, you know, just everything I was doing, he was wrong. But I just thought, you know, it was a little bit like in the Karate Kid, you know, where. There's the wax on and the wax off, and I just made up my mind. You know, I, I went home the first day. I, you know, I tape recorded the lesson, and then the next morning I played the played the tape, and I thought, you know, f for heaven's sakes, I'm doing more talking than the teacher, and I just thought, if I'm going to learn this and if I'm going to do it, I just need to shut up, and and so I just made up my mind that I was going to do everything he said. And and I wasn't going to fight him on it. I was just going to try and do everything he said from that moment on. And you know, I was with him for 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 two years. And and during that time, Darren, I don't know, maybe once or twice in the two years that I was taking lessons, we played in sessions together. We didn't we didn't I didn't go with him to sessions until I would you know I was going back to Trilly every year on holiday. This would have been you know I was there from two thousand and two to two thousand and four, and we hardly ever played a session. And then after that, when I would when I would return, I would sort of drag him out to the sessions. He wasn't he wasn't as keen on the sessions as I was. Why was that? Well, I, th I think I think for me, much of the music is is about connecting with with other people, and 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 the human connection. You know, I remember I remember as a kid going to Bruce Spring a young man going to Bruce Springsteen concerts and getting very emotional, feeling like you know Bruce Springsteen is t even though there's seventy thousand people here. In the stadium, he's talking to me personally, which mm -hmm. of course is which is so, so, sort of the power of Bruce Springsteen. But also, it's you know it's BS. He's not talking to me personally. And I got very interested in the Grateful Dead at one time for a similar reason, as there was a sense of community at Grateful Dead concerts. And so for me, the music has always been about connecting with other people. I think that's was le a little less important to Patty. I think what he's connecting to is sort of this higher power that was sort of. Uh, this sort of mystical, you know, meaning of life and, and, you know, the music taking you to another plane. And, and it was one of the reasons I think that he often disdained recordings is if you listen to the, some of the home recordings that have been made of Patty Jones, you can kind of hear him grunting and groaning. And I remember once when, he, when someone was recording him at a home, kind of a home situation, they came up to me and said, 
what what's going on with him? Like, why is he grunting and groaning like that? And I always, I always, you know, he he was Padraig O'Keefe's he was Padraig O'Keefe's final student, mm. which in the book I got wrong, Darren, and it hurt some people's feelings. There, were, there, there there's still one lady left that that took lessons from. Padraig O'Keefe, but at, at one point there was, you know, there was a half dozen of them still yeah, yeah. alive, and I, I had claimed publicly that that Patty Jones was the last living student, but he was O'Keefe's final student, and he was a ten-year-old boy at the time. But um, I, I think I, I think that with, you know, I think I've seen this happen in West Virginia, where it's so remote and so mountainous that it's not seen as it's not a community thing where lots of people get together. It's a solo thing, and I think so. Patty, in some ways, was a solo player. Or a small setting player, he wouldn't have been, you know, he just wasn't comfortable at a session, and he couldn't really do his thing at a session. Like for 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 one thing, he loved to play slow airs, and usually if you play a slow air at the session, it you know just everything screeches to a halt, and it, people don't want to, you know, it's hard to get the pub quiet for a slow air, and no one, you know, when it's a slow air is a solo event by by design. And so he was just, he just wasn't, you know, one of the things I've learned about Irish music is you can be great in a concert, you can be great on the radio, you can be great as a teacher, and you can be, but there's there's just different things to be good at when you're an Irish music. Play, some people are great playing for dances, and, uh, you know, some people are great session players, and it's hard to be great at everything. I think there's very few players that can do all of the things that, that I just that I just named. Um, and Patty, I don't think he ever saw himself as a session player. And, and so when I would come back to Tralee each year after the after my last year in Tralee, some you know the other players would often whisper to me, "This is the first time we've seen Patty Jones since you were here last time." He he was a bit of a recluse and he lived a very a very private life. And he uh, you know he had his books and his music and his bed and his table and you know he lived in a and and you know he i mentioned this in the book that he he was heating his home he had devised a uh uh you know devised a, a stove to heat his home with used chipper oil you know french fry oil that he would so if you walked up to patty jones's home in the middle of nowhere in the hills of county Kerry, you you'd sniff and she says is there a McDonald's or a Supermac around here? It, it, it smelled like French fries on the on the way on the way up up to his house, and so he lived a, a very Spartan life uh, by choice. And I think he was a and he was a co- very complicated man in a lot of ways. It's really interesting how you have actually when you were mentioning Paddy's um, relationship with the session, and, and it kind of it's made me think of what we were speaking about early on when we spoke about the kind of manufacturing of the session whether it's the the all-time jam or um like in our session and i i don't want to sound like i'm kind of i'm having a go when i say manufacturing i'm kind of saying look it's something that kind of is more is a modern thing and i like i I love the idea of the the west virginia style of playing so for people that don't know much about all-time music russ am i right in saying where this the jam is wouldn't have been as popular or thing even it would have been the mountainous region so your friend if they did come over they'd come up over the mountain into the valley and then you would sit and pass the fiddle back and forth and play play tunes all night that way is that right I, I, yeah i think there's much more of that in the in the remote parts of west virginia where th- there wouldn't have been a town dance or you know in in ireland the crossroads dancing i think that some of those guys were in such remote 
parts of town that they had developed their own style and, and often their own tunings, you know, where they'd be cross-tuned, you know, where, where they wouldn't be have their fiddles tuned in standard tuning. And, and even to play what, what they would call crooked tunes, where they were, you know, every Irish reel and jig pretty much is in a standard format of whatever it is, 16 beats per you know, whatever, I'm, I wouldn't be great with the numbers either, but, but in, in, there's places in West Virginia and some of the more remote places where the tunes aren't square. They're not, they're not mathematically, they don't make sense mathematically the way mm-hmm. most Irish tunes do. But and a slow air would have fit in in that environment, for example. Say that again? A slow air. Yeah, well, that's that, right. What, that's, that fits that's in right. because it's a, it's a, it doesn't need to fit in. To, it doesn't need to yeah. make people dance yeah. or fit and, in where people can join in. Yeah, and you can't you can't do a Cayley to a to a crooked tune, and I think Patty, in some ways, was very much like that. Was that he wasn't always comfortable in a in a in a session setting. It wasn't that he was antisocial exactly, but he, I think you know one of the things if you met him, he wasn't a frivolous you know he wasn't good on the small talk. He went right for the heart, <laughs> you know why, you know what is the purpose of the music and what's the meaning of life and these are very strange times we're living in and. He could be, you know, not not everybody wants to. I found all that kind of stuff in, intensely interesting, but not everybody. Some people just want to have frivolous chit chat, but he he wouldn't have had time for that kind of. Uh, and he kind of disdained the, you know, disdained the commercialism of the music, and so he had he had opportunities to record, you know, as as one of O'Keefe's last students and sort of this um, prominent. Uh, ambassador of of uh, sleeve lucra music but he was a decided non-promoter you know he never sent an email in his life he had no website he he had no you know he would he, he you know he had no facebook page he had he wasn't on twitter he didn't have a you know a snapchat page or or that kind of thing he he had no interest in that he never owned a computer it was all you could do to get him to open up a, a cell phone in his in his later years he did he grow up in Trilly all his life? No, he grew up near Castle Island. He's from a little village called Kilcusnan, and it's three miles. It was three. He was born maybe in maybe nineteen forty six, I think, and he was. But uh, it's three miles east of Castle Island, and he, and he he did. He told me he didn't have you know those the kids didn't have, wear shoes until they were nine or ten years old. And that uh, that he'd never flown on an airplane until he was thirty, and didn't eat in a restaurant until he was in his twenties. And uh, that if you if you at, th- at that time if you were going to have fruit in that part of the world, it was an apple. You'd get an orange at Christmas, but you wouldn't be able to go to the store and get strawberries or pineapples. Or and I think one of the things he talked about, and he's not the only one. I would imagine that Ben Lennon and and some of these guys grew up the same way, but that it was a very uh, simple life and. Uh, and that uh, I think he would have pre- preferred that life to you know kids today who have too much stuff and too much electronics and and that kind of he had a real disdain and so w- as a boy when his father set him up with uh, lessons his father had been one of O'Keefe's O'Keefe was a, a teacher by trade but he quickly ruined that because he was an itinerant musician that drank too much and so he wound up losing his teaching job uh, but but. Patty Jones's father had been one of O'Keefe's students at the school, mm-hmm. and uh, and had sort of set up lessons for Patty to take to take lessons with O'Keefe. I think starting around age ten, and so it was a three mile walk from Patty Jones's house 
to O'Keefe's house. Now, can you imagine a, a 10-year-old boy walking three miles for the lesson? And it, it would be maybe a 10-minute or 15-minute lesson, and then you'd turn around and walk back. But as yeah. the as as the as the you know only happened for a few years, and Patty Jones said that many times he'd go to O'Keefe's home and he wouldn't have come back from Saturday night. So you uh, take the you know the three mile walk in the rain, and and turn around and 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 walk back. But he had nothing but good things to say about o, o, O'Keefe. But I think that O'Keefe, it seems to me from what I know about him that he sort of devolved into drink and that he, you know, in his later years he was never recorded until he was well past his prime. And he was, although there's a Patrick O'Keefe week and and he's revered in in Castle Island now, according to Patty Jones, that he was put out of pubs as a young, you know, as a man that that they would have had no time for him. Like here's a fellow who's just going to drink, and he would, you know, he would use the fiddle that was in the pub, and uh, that he didn't even have his own fiddle because if he had one, he would sell it for drink. Yeah, it, you know, unfortunately, just that, that that seems to be a fairly common story with a lot of the, the the revered names now where you know some well i don't know upset anyone but i have heard stories about some of the much revered names that when i've mentioned them i've been told yeah but when he when they were alive or when they weren't they weren't the the hero that they're being made out to be today and they weren't respected for their music ship it's a it's it's just it's a shame that that's the case but i suppose that's the case with with many uh, an artist, I'd, I'd say that's true. But but also, I, I think it's especially true now, where you know, at many of the sessions you get free drink, as particularly if you're the host of the session. And so I, I mentioned Shane McAleer, who's a, just such a great, great fiddle player. You know, when he was 18, he was the fiddle player in Dervish. You know, one of the best known. You've probably mm-hmm. heard of Dervish, I imagine. One of the best known yeah. that you know they've toured the world, and he was getting a salary and free drinks, and he just. He just wasn't old enough to to handle. You know, thank God for me, Darren. I'm I'm not a very good fiddler, and I'm a lightweight, so there was never 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 a, a danger of me losing myself to drink. But you know, he wound up getting. I wrote about Shane McAleer as the first piece I wrote for Fiddler magazine, so I got to know him pretty well in, in living in Belfast and working on the story. When I knew him, he wasn't drinking at all. He was drinking tea the in, entire session. And uh, but to, but to have that kind of you know to have free drink and be treated as a star and be people giving you standing ovations all over the world, you know, how do you keep things in perspective? It's just the same with, do you remember a few years ago, Mike Tyson was, he was heavyweight champion of the world by the time he was 20. He was a millionaire by the time he's 20. And of course he went off the rails. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's hard to, you know, it's a, thank, thank goodness we've never been so successful, Darren, you and I. <laughs> uh, Russ, I'd like to I'm just wondering, should we have a break for a tune? But I'd, I'd kind of, when we're speaking about Patty, one of the really interesting things that came up throughout the book, and it seems to be kind of within Patty's philosophy, is the idea of needing to experience the the essence of Ireland or being Irish, whether it's, I don't know, walking in the rain or listening to stories or you know um what are the things that you said like walking the bogs feeling the rain in your face how how important now that you've walked a walk a few times and as you said like collectively probably lived there for a good three years how how important is that now that you have kind of gone some way to to try and achieve it well i one of the things that patty said i don't think this is in the book but something he said often was that all of the great 
knowledge in human history has been handed down from person to person. I don't know that that's exactly true, but I think there's a lot of truth to that, particularly in music. And I think he felt like, and I think there's some truth to this, is that, say, for for basketball, I can watch on YouTube, you know, (laughs) or, or, you know, watch a lot of basketball on YouTube and try and learn the game that way, or I can sit at the foot of a master coach, as I did with, you know, I worked for a man named Lou Henson and a man named Don Haskins, two of the greatest coaches in history. I I was able to learn from them, and I could have looked in a book at it, uh, and I think it's the same. I think what Patty would say is that technically that the players today are are better than than O'Keefe and better than what, what he grew up with, but that there's something lost from learning it from CDs and learning it from YouTube that, that, but by not learning it from person to person, that there's an element that's lost, and and it's the hand, you know like you you won't get you know the a factory made fiddle is generally known not to be as good as a as a handmade fiddle one that's mm-hmm. made you know by a single person, and I do think there's an element of that is, is that uh, is not just to immerse yourself in the music and like for me when I lived in Tralee, I only listened to Irish music for a couple of years. I thought. If I'm going to learn this, I've got to stop listening to everything else. And so I only listened to Irish music for a couple of years. But I think there's a limit to what you can, in my opinion, there's a limit to what you can learn, uh, you know, on on YouTube and from videos. And so it's happened to me as a writer. Just by chance, I happened to uh, become friends with a writer here in, in New Mexico named Robert Boswell and his wife, Antonia Nelson. And I was friends with them before I ever wanted to be a writer and so I was able to sort of glean, uh, you know, from person to person. And so I, I do think that it's hugely important is to, if you're going to understand Irish music, to, to immerse yourself uh, in it as much as you can. And fortunate, we're fortunate that you can do it in Chicago or Philadelphia or New York. That it's, you know, the, I, I find the Chicago scene to be a, a tremendous scene. You know, some of the best players in the world are. Are playing in Chicago, but yeah, he did say that to me. He asked me, "Have you ever walked in the bogs in the rain?" <laughs> you know, well, you know, like I, I, no, I hadn't, and I, I couldn't, you know, my like my father's Russian and my mother's Swiss, you know, by heritage, you know, Russian American and Swiss. Like I couldn't change my heritage, and I couldn't go back and relive my childhood. I couldn't walk barefoot, like Patty Jones did, and I couldn't, you know, dig in the, you know, dig for the turf, but. You know, try to do what I can to, you know, to immerse myself in Irish history and Irish culture. And you know, Russ, like that whole sentiment in the book kind of got me because that's in part what myself and Dom are are trying to achieve for ourselves with with this. Like we live in a in a small village. Like when I call it a village, it makes it sound like it's a like a it's a yeah like a quaint seaside town it's 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 not it's kind of posh and like it's sport is the is the king here and you got your your mac mansions and stuff like that so we're definitely not surrounded by irish music or 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 music i should just say so there's that and i knew myself that so much of what this music is is what's around it and the people and the stories and no matter how many records I listen to or like at best from where I live, I can maybe go to one session a week. And that's a, that's a slog. Like that's a, that's a three hour round drive or almost four hour round drive to do that. 
to have conversations with the likes of yourself or whether it's um someone like Joni who's coming Johnny Madden who's coming at it from a, like a a very successful touring artist side or if it's the likes of um the Fitzgerald brothers in Melbourne here getting an idea on the music and what it is to be to be Irish actually is that from from your book now I'm getting confused is there a quote in there that says that Irish music teaches you how to be Irish is that yours no but I wish I wish it was <laughs> it's something uh, I've read but, recently and it's it's that idea yeah like I get the sentiment of feeling the rain in your face it's about understanding the all of the peripheral that's not just what's captured within the needle or like within the the mp3 file it's it's all of the other aspects of of, of the culture and the music well I, I and i think the other thing that makes it difficult for us you know we i live a fairly comfortable life i've got my paychecks haven't stopped with the virus and i do think that great art and great music often comes from suffering that's where the blues in america came from is you know the the pain and suffering produced the blues music and and i think you know what what patty jones uh, i didn't know him when he was you know in the 70s and 80s but he had i think he had a very difficult time he, you know he was divorced twice and he had a, he has three kids that i think he had a, a complicated relationship with and he had a fourth child that was uh special needs and i can't remember what uh, her medical condition was but i think she died as a young girl and needed 24 hour care and and Patty Patty told me, and not many people know this, that he was a, a, a caretaker, a janitor, at the University of Birmingham, and that he would go into the closet, and weep, for hours. Well, I, I'm not willing to do that. Like, you know, like I I think I'd I'd go to the doctor, and he would give me antidepressants or whatever, and and and, and some people, of course, need that, and it, it saves their lives. But I think I think part of what who Patty Jones was came out of this immense. You know, these these broken personal relationships and this this you know childhood of poverty and this sort of uh, trying to figure out what's important in the world and I just I just don't think you can have muddy waters without racial discrimination and, and prejudice and I, I so I just think that there's times when uh, that it, that art comes out of out of madness or depression or sadness. Um, you know whether you're Jackson Pollock or or, or Liz Carroll or you know or you know or, or or Bruce Springsteen. It's it's through the struggle I think that art is created and and you know I think Patty really Patty Jones in particular really had some real struggles and that's the great tragedy of course of him. He died in May, and the great tragedy is he was he was getting a pension from his time working in England and getting his Irish pension and so he's getting about three thousand euros a month, which was all the money in the world to him. Mm. And it's just a shame that he couldn't, you know, enjoy that for the next 50, fifteen or twenty years. Russ, do you have do you have time to maybe have give us one more tune, and then I have a few more things I'd like to ask you about before we finish up. I do. I know we hadn't spoke about uh, this is going over the quota, but uh, I'm really enjoying chatting with you. So if I don't get a tune from you.
Lovely. Thanks, Ross. Do you, do you have the names of those? Yeah, that was uh, Farewell to Whiskey, uh, which I think originally was a slow error, but it became popular in Kerry. So Farewell to Whiskey and The Dark Girl in the Blue Dress. As a, an ex-drinker, Farewell to Whiskey is, is a tune I, I love. I love that. It's just such a great name. <laughs> and it's well, it's, I miss it's it. a like, sad I'm, name. Whiskey is such a... I, I loved... I love the art of whiskey and the, the, it's just such a rich topic. And I really just, I would sit and smell it. Like I was, I never drank whiskey really as a, as a, as a drinker, as a drunk it was, it was always, uh, something I, I just indulged in the, in all the senses of it. So farewell to whiskey is a, is a lovely name. Yeah. Um, so Paddy passed away in May just gone in 2020 that's right and uh, he wound up uh, he'd had two battles with cancer before and he'd beat you know beat them more or less he was he was he wasn't living at home so much in uh, on Knights Mountain where he has the home with the uh, where he heats uh, where he's heating it with the used chipper oil he was living mostly in Brosno with with his girlfriend Rose and uh, and and, but when uh, I think, you know, the cancer kept coming back, and I rang him in. I, in general, I rang him every every week or two on Sundays when I knew he would be at Rose's in Brosna. And I rang him one Sunday, and he sounded terrible. And he said, and he's supposed to go into the doctors in a few days, and he went in, and the cancer was back. And, uh, and so he wound up, you know, and I thought, oh, my God, I've got to go out there. But by then, the virus had hit. And, of course, there was an un, you know, there was sort of this, paranoia that you would you know that you could you know that that we didn't know exactly how it was transmitted and we're still sorting it out I guess but I thought I wanted to go out and see him but I couldn't and it's one of the great now I don't think he would call it a great tragedy but you know he essentially died alone that for first Darren he he declined treatment and so I think they had asked you know they had wanted him to look we'll just cut this out and cut that out and you can keep fighting and we'll get through this and but I think he'd had enough. You know, he had been, it had, you know, it really diminished him physically. He was a very robust fellow that would hike and, and cycle. And he was very physically active and very physically fit. He was, he was a very physical man. He had thick, you know, thick chest and, you know, thick fingers and was strong as, as strong as could be. And, uh, and so he wound up going into the hospital in Tralee, not the same one that, you know, Padraig O'Keefe wound up dying in a, in a Trilly, in Trilly General Hospital, but he uh, died at the one called uh, Bon Secours, and he was alone for the entire time. And it wasn't uh, the the day before he died. They let his daughter. Uh, I've only met the one daughter, Deirdre, but they uh, let his daughter and Rose go in and see him the day before he passed. And I knew that they were going to do that because I'd been in touch with Rose every few days, and so I was able to speak with him. Uh, one last time, uh, and you know he'd come out to New Mexico uh, for eight or ten years in a row. He was coming out to New Mexico to do house concerts and uh, and to spend spend a few weeks. But uh, I was able to to speak with him. You know, I, I hadn't seen him for two years, and I was able to speak to him one last time. And you can imagine it wasn't the it wasn't the happiest uh, no. happiest phone call ever. But I was able to speak to him one last time before he died. Do you remember, do you remember the last time you actually saw him? I do. I was it was in Brosna, and my wife and daughter and I have a beautiful photo that maybe I can share with you. 
yes, uh, of uh, of my uh, of my daughter and him sitting at the holy well in Brazna in front of a you know in front of a statue of the Virgin Mary. Um, so I, I was I, trying to go back to Ireland every year on holiday, and and, and of course my my wife had won a Fulbright in 2012. So we lived in Belfast for six months, and we had such a good time. We went back to Belfast in 2015 for our sabbatical. And in, in fact, Darren, I've, I've, I've was lucky enough to win a Fulbright. I'll be back in Belfast next January. Um, so when and he came up to Belfast both times that we were there. And so in general, I was seeing him every year. But the, the maybe the most important part, you know, I think he had a certain. Just as I had a view of Ireland, this mystique of Ireland, that of course, is long gone. You know, Ireland has been overrun by cell phone culture and commercialized like so many places. But uh, I think he had this view of New Mexico, that he romanticized New Mexico. So he started coming out for, for house concerts uh, in New Mexico back in 2005. And he re- I think it was good for him because although he was pretty much unknown in Ireland, uh, he became sort of this this uh, celebrated figure in Irish music th- throughout the Southwest here. That people came from all over to his house concerts, and he really got the hero treatment here. And near the end of his life, um, Willie Clancy Week started bringing him in as you know for the they have these masters concerts where you play three or four tunes. And so Willie, he was finally being recognized near the end of his life. He was only seventy three when he died, but he was finally being recognized at the end of his life. For his, you know, his unique style and his real uh, connection to sleeve lucre. But one of the things I remember, and I think I don't think that I helped him much, but I think the I think the book publicized him a little bit. And and when he'd come out and do these house concerts in New Mexico, you know, there's something about the Irish accent that Americans I think find very enticing. And so, you know, between the tunes he would talk and the people would just fall over. Oh, isn't it? <laughs> he had a very thick Kerry accent. You know, he's difficult to understand even for me being being around him for years but I remember once we did a house concert in Taos you know and I'd play a few with him and I would tell some stories and you know and, and we would often entice people to read uh, William Yates poems and Seamus Haney poems and once after a, after a house concert in Taos which is a very you've maybe never been to Taos but it's a very sort of new agey there's a lot of spiritual this and people think that it's this vortex of spirituality and so once at a house concert in Taos there was maybe 40 people there and 30 of them were probably women in in dreadlocks with purple outfits on yeah. and the house concert ended and they said listen you can get some food Russ if you want to there's still the food left over there so i went to the back and got my plate of food and came out and there was maybe a dozen women sitting at patty jones's feet and it was, you know, it was as if he was John the Baptist, you know, and they were just, wow. and uh, and I and at one point I thought, well, he's surely he'll move to New Mexico and he'll find a, you know, find a beautiful woman to marry. And I think he did love New Mexico, but he always went back to Brazna and back to back to County Kerry, and he never did move here. But he, he I think he loved New Mexico and, and and was out here maybe I think maybe eight eight different times that we flew him out and made the money for his flight on the house concerts. Yeah. With um, did you ever did he ever speak to you about the book? Like, what was his reaction to the book? Well, I I, I think he liked it. I, I think I got a few facts wrong, and one of them was that he was not O'Keefe, the last living student of O'Keefe. He was o- O'Keefe's final student. He was the last person that O'Keefe taught. And then you know I, I said that he was in his sixties when he was only fifty three. 
But I think I think that in in general he liked it. I think he he chuckles about it as as if that I was, you know, like any of any writer does. I might have stretched a, stretched a few things, you know, stretched a few things here and there. But um, but I think in general he liked it, and of course he had never been, no one had ever written about him ever before, and uh, and and part of it, of course, was his own his own doing is that he had no interest in making a CD and he had no interest in being famous and he had no interest in, you know, building a website, you know, or, or being glorified in any way. It wasn't what he's, he didn't see the music as, as he just had no, he, not only did he have no interest in being famous, he didn't even want to be recorded. Um, and it's, I, I, I do have some, I have plenty of home recordings of them, but they don't, some of them I'm playing along with. So of course it ruins them. Uh, but there are some good. At one point in Chicago, he was making. He tried. To, he agreed to try to make a CD with a really great guitar player named Jesse Langan, and they sat down for hours and hours for a week. But it was never. It never wound up coming to fruition. You have a recording of Paddy that you you wanted to share with us. Is that right? I do. I I I I think I've sent it to you. I, I the ones that I've targeted are the slow airs because I remember him being at house concerts playing these slow airs, and I you know he, of course I didn't accompany him on the slow airs. Just a few of the polkas and slides I'd accompany him, and and uh, but I remember him playing slow airs and people would just be weeping openly. I mean, just tears pouring out of him. He could really get to the you know stab you in the heart with his slow errors. And of course, that's never going to happen at a session because, the, you know, the cash register is clanking and people are talking and, you know, people aren't listening. Not everybody's listening. A slow error just doesn't carry in a pub. Uh, would you, I think it would be, it would be a really nice time. I'm actually going to just insert that slow error that you, um, that you sent me. I'm going to insert that now. So let's have, have a listen to it here. Yeah, and that's by the way that uh, that is Jesse Langan playing guitar behind him. Lovely, thanks for that, Russ.
So, Russ, you, you after your time in Tralee, you went back to the States, but then you came, you came back and you live in Belfast for a while, is that right? Yeah, my, my, wife won, was, my wife is a well-known poet named Connie Voisin, and she won a Fulbright, uh, which is a, uh, an uh, academic award. I, I, the joke was, Darren, I won the Half-Bright, and she won the Fulbright. <laughs> but, yeah. And so I, I, here I was with you know, all this time on my hand for six months. My, my daughter was in P2, you know, what we would call kindergarten, and I had all this time on my hand. And Belfast is a lively Irish scene for, you, you know, you can play every night and then play for eight or ten hours. You go, go sort of session hopping on, on Friday and Saturday and Sunday. And I'd been to Belfast the once before where I'd met Andy Dixon. And by chance, the house that we rented was Andy Dixon's old house. Oh, no and way. I never knew Andy wound up dying this past spring, and I never knew Andy well because by the time I moved to Belfast, he had left Belfast and sort of moved into the into the country. But I'd see him occasionally at the sessions, and I, I was a big admirer of him. But I I wound up living in it was a house owned by Connor Caldwell's father. Connor Caldwell might be the best young fiddle player in in uh, Belfast, and so there was this sort of tradition of fiddle players living in this house on Hay Park off the Ormo Road. And, and and the only musician I knew when we moved there was this Sheila Boylan, who married the great fiddle player who married Jerry O'Connor. But she was now living in Dundalk, and I asked her, well, what nights are they playing? And she was very vague with me, and I thought, why is she being so evasive? Does she not want me to go to the sessions? But And maybe she didn't. She'd heard me play before. But yeah. but, but but I think it was just the sessions are everywhere, and I think she knew that if I would just poke around a little bit, that, that, that it was just a very lively session scene. And one of the things that I, I notice in Belfast, unlike many Irish session scenes in America, is they're just delighted that there's someone who's from out of town. Like they were mystified, like, why would you want to live in Belfast and why would you want to come? To, I think for many years it was really uh, there was a real stigma because of the violence. And of course, it's one it's one of the greatest cities in the world now. And I think it's the great city in the world for Irish music. There's just great, great players. And there's even a. a, a, a a steady old-time scene on Saturday nights. There's a, a fellow named Bernie Stocks and, and Jordy McAdams. They're, they play both old-time. You know, there's not many people that are crossing over. My my friend in Chicago, Mark Gunther, was a great, great old-time player who only plays Irish now. And But there's a few people in Belfast. Andy Dixon was one of them, too, that that are playing uh, uh, playing old-time music and Irish. But it's it's exhausting, the, the Irish scene. And there were times when I would just have to take a break and not go out. But in general, my, my wife is really great where she knows, you know, no one's going to the Irish music scene to meet women. It's, you know, it's just such a nerdy kind of uh, pocket, sort of a niche. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so I was, you know, I'm, when I'm in Belfast, I'm out five nights a week and I'm hoping to be out five nights a week next January. It was an interesting thing you said in the book was when you had mentioned you went up to Belfast. I forget what it was it for a game or not, but you you went into a session and at that stage you were playing four or five sessions a week down in Tralee and you thought you'd sit in a session up in Belfast. But I think you had said that the, there was a lot of reels and the the fiddle players played with a, a very different, I don't know if the word was aggression, but there was a definite attack that was very different to what you were used to. And I think you you finished that section by saying something about um, Trilly. You, you were confident that Trilly was your musical home. How did that well, change as as over the time that you lived then in Belfast? Well, in in Kerry, you, it might be twenty percent of the tunes that are 
reels, and the rest are it's jigs and hornpipes and marches and, and of course, polkas and slides. Well, when I went to Belfast, I thought I didn't want to annoy anyone. You know, I'm pretty good at not playing if I don't know the tune and not annoying people, but I thought, I'll just wait till they play the slides and the polkas. Well, if you wait for the slides and the polkas in Belfast, you might wait a few weeks. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so I quickly, you know, I, you know, and it seemed like every session I went to, this Shane McAleer was there. At one point, he was, he's no longer living in Belfast, but he, he was playing five nights a week. I mean, he was, the, he was like James Brown, you know, the hardest working man in show business. <laughs> yeah. and, and I just thought, I've got to learn more reels. At that point, I might have only had 10 or 12 reels, because in, in Kerry, you could get away with not knowing so many reels. Uh, but I just made up my mind, I'm going to learn as many reels as I can. It's a, it's a peppier style, and it's pretty much jigs and reels, and that's it. Um, whereas in, in, I think part of the reason I felt so at home in Cary is the polkas. You know, I, I'd come from New Mexico, and polkas are a big part of Mexican music. And so I, I, I knew, I knew a, a dozen or so Mexican polkas and could... The, the rhythm didn't seem so obscure to me. And I, I do think, Darren, I will also say that I think that just like old time music, carry music, it's easier to get it. It's easier to sound okay right away. Uh, it, right. It's, it's. I think it takes years and years to be a great old time player, but you can halfway fake it after a couple of years. And I think carry, that's the deception of. It sounds like you know polkas seem very. They're you know do, do, they're two four and they're very. They can seem very simple, but the great players like to hear Patty Jones play or Padraig O'Keefe play a polka. Or Dennis Murphy, you know that it's a very different. You know, there's a it's a very subtle, and it's the same with old time music. Is the tunes might seem simple, but to hear a great, you know, hear a great player today, like a Bruce Malski or Reese Jones or or so, someone like that, play a old time music. It's it's a it's it's very subtle, you know, and yeah. So there's a, it's it, it can be deceptive in that way. I, I love that that video. I mentioned it earlier on this chat, but and I'll link it in the show notes here, of Paddy Jones. I forget the gentleman's name that he's talking to, but it's um, it's the Sleeve Lucre YouTube channel, and Paddy's, this particular uh, section, he's talking about the drift, and he's, he uses Maggie in the Woods as an example of a very simple tune, but how in the hands of a master it would transform into into this beautiful thing. He, he says something about it, like music in the hands of a, a Sleeve Lucre master takes you on a magic carpet ride or something like that. He does a fantastic job of yeah, explaining what we yeah, just been I love that. It. Yeah, I love that set of there's there's six of those on on YouTube. They're made by a filmmaker named Elva Kyogen, and she's a, a Kerry woman that, as a child, as a teenager, she would go to the Tralee Tigers basketball matches. Oh wow! And she she got and she's actually the one she's bought the film rights to Patty on the Hardwood. So we're 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 holding out hope that it it could be a movie someday. But I I do think those those films that she made of Patty Jones really capture him and. The fellow with him is, is a, a young fiddler named Stan Sullivan, yeah. and he was—I think—he was an apprentice, a uh, sleeve lucre apprentice, somehow through the Arts Council or something like that. But th- th- those really, although in those videos that you see, uh, you know, Patty's hair is a little bit longer, and he, you know, he had he had he has dentures in those. Like he's, he'd had he'd had bad bad you know bad. Uh, teeth up until a few years ago and he's lost he'd lost he looked very thin in those in those videos but they really do capture him and I, there's something about Alva Kyogen's you know setting up that whole filmmaking thing that I think really captures so just you have to put in the fiddle you have to put Patty Jones fiddle 
into YouTube and you can see all six of them. And it's, I think maybe it's, is it an hour total maybe, Darren? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what I'll do is I'll link each one of them, part one, two, three, four, five, six, in the show notes. So if anyone's listening, you can, when you're finished listening, they'll all be in the show notes there for you just to click on. Um, Russ, thank you so much for uh, today. I really love this chat. And I'm right, I'm right in thinking after speaking about the Mexican inspired polkas, um, maybe you could tell us a bit about the the background to that. I think you and Dennis and is it your daughter are going to give us something a little bit different. Yeah, we'll we'll play a, a rare set of a rare North Kerry polka that I learned from Kerry Barrett and and Paul de Grey. Uh, he just calls it a Kerry polka. But after I'll, I'll do what we did in. Tralee is occasionally in Tralee, I would uh, uh, either annoy or uh, delight the other session <laughs> players by, by playing a, this tune called Purple Lilies. And Purple Lilies, it, it's, I think it's popular in Mexico, but it actually comes from the Tejano Autumn Indians uh, that are from Arizona, which is right next to New Mexico. You know, when, when the Spanish came and colonized uh, that part of uh, that p- part of Mexico, they brought their violins with them and the colonial dances, and Purple Lilies was was became one of their tunes. I learned that from from the great New Mexican band Bayou Seco, who's been sort of like my musical parents here in New Mexico. But yeah, we'll we'll so we'll do a Kerry Polka and then and then uh, follow it up with Purple Lilies. Fantastic, Russ. Thank you so much for your time this evening, and Dennis. Thank you for your uh, technical wizardry in the background and playing along. And also, Russ, what's your daughter's name? It's Alma. A L M A. Alma, thank you so much yep. for your playing as well. Yeah, thanks a million, Darren. Yeah, I love the. I will confess, I, I love the podcast, and there's something about the the pace of it. I've told you this before, I guess, but the the pace of it and sort of the. The, the probing, you know, the way you probe and the way you're not in a hurry. Uh, you know, I, I, I have trouble, you know, the, the news has spun my head around. Things are in a strange place in America, and they have been for a while. And so it's, it's nice to sort of, uh, I, I'll, I'll say that I think it's a great compliment to say, I think Patty Jones would have liked this show. Oh, well, I'll take that as a, a high praise. Thank you so much, Russ. There, there it is. And, uh, and we'll, we'll stay in touch anyway. Perfect. Thank and, you, Russ. And and Darren, we've we've got, and you tell that Dominic that he'll have to buy me a pint in Belfast sometime. I'll I'll be in Belfast next January. But if you guys ever come to New Mexico, I've we've a guest house, uh, a, a private freestanding guest house. So come come and stay for a while in New Mexico whenever you get ready. We would love to. Twenty twenty was was shaping up to be a year where we we're going to try and travel around to interview people because we had to be face to face really 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 miss sitting down face to face with people yeah. but um it's great to be able to do what we're doing now but uh, yeah. i will definitely take you up on that offer and, I, and I do think you know I, I write for fiddle magazine sometime and, and that's what i wrote about shane mcalear and a few other people but there, there's there's shane has a, a remarkable story and there's plenty of great there's a few or a handful of just world-class players in chicago too i know you've got liz carroll already but if you ever need ideas or, or contact information let me know Actually, speaking of Fiddle Magazine, like I'm still recording here, but speaking of um, Fiddle Magazine, I read somewhere about you. I'm trying to remember the exact quote, but it, it was talking about um, changing your writing style or, or, or the challenges of writing about Irish music or re- re- reviewing fiddle plays. Um, does this sound familiar? And, and if it does, can you expand on it? Well, just I think what you're trying to describe the indescribable. Like, how do you describe music 
with words. I don't. It's. I think it's really difficult to do. I mean, James Baldwin does it at the end of the great short story Sonny's Blues, but everybody else I think has fallen short, in, including me. Like, how do you capture music with words? And so, so for me, it was one of the things about basketball as well. Is I'm very interested in the music, of course, but I'm very interested also in the stories behind the music. Um, like I find, I found. Patty, Patty Jones's life to be intriguing, and and you know Shane McAleer's life, to, you know, to be an intriguing life, or uh, the 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 Northern Ireland flute player Larry Nugent in his, you know, his battles with addiction and growing up around the troubles and that kind of thing. And so I I do think that the the, the music can also be a window into it. But how do you write about music? It's it's I think it's a challenge, and it's hard to do without seeming cliche and. And to make it fresh and new, it's it's uh, it's uh, it's not an easy thing to do. Sure. Uh, w- one thing I didn't ask you too is for our listeners that would be interested in reading the book or following you or wanting to know more about you, where should people go to? Well, let's see. Uh, uh, my my website is russbradbird.com, but that's mostly you know it's one S in Russ, um, but it's that's mostly that's nearly all book stuff um but but by you know just by google google you know fiddle magazine isn't a good one for online they don't have much uh they don't have much of an online presence i think because yeah. it's such a small operation it's actually a great magazine but it's it's just being d- run by one or t- two people but patty on the hardwood is available uh well it's at it's at the uh, no alibis bookshop in belfast and uh, but it's available online just by googling Patty on the Hardwood. Well, you I'll put a link it. to your um, the to your st- website. It's still, and then. Yeah, it's st- the book's still in print, and and if if Alva Kyogen can work her magic, I think I, I I'm I think it's probably one in a hundred that it'll be a movie, but most books are one in a million to be a movie. Yeah, so no, that it would be great, and uh, yeah, I think if we can support our local bookshops in in doing this, even better in keeping that away from yeah. old, old Jeff. He doesn't need any more money that's Russ, right again it, thank you yeah. so much um i think if we can go out on that last tune that that would be great yeah thanks a million darren and give my best to dominic will do thanks mate
Darren, that was uh, Dennis Daly on guitar, my musical partner, and my daughter Alma, uh, age 14, on the, on the Purple Lilies portion. Well, when I hung up the conversation from having a chat with Russ, I just found out that uh, an old-time session that was happening locally, and I mean, in the three years I've been down here, there hasn't been an old-time session, it was just cancelled, and I was uh, pretty devastated to find out that. But, uh, you know, that's that's life. Um, it's it's It was really nice to have a chat with Russ and kind of talk about old-time versus... Irish music because it's I don't often get to talk to someone that straddles both worlds because as much as they're very very different they're very very same <clears throat> they're very very similar in a lot of aspects um I just I think one of my my biggest my biggest well, I wouldn't know what the word is I love the fact as Russ said for me I love the fact that I could show up in the early stages of my musical career in an old time session and because the tunes are simple kind of fake it pretty early on and as i said during that chat knowing with the art with the irish session that i have a long road i need to know exactly the tune and be able to play it properly before i actually take my instrument out at a, at a session is a uh, it kills me. I think it only kills me because of the kind of personality I have, and I think we live in an age these days where instant gratification is. We're fairly used to it. We want to know something. You look it up on Google. You want to see something. You look it up on Netflix. Uh, old time music. I wouldn't say it's instant. Like it took me a while to get the basics down, but it didn't take me too long before I was having a good time in in jams. Where with Irish music, I'm still very aware that yeah, of a, of a long road. But then thinking of Paddy Jones and what he said about it being an, an old man or an old old woman, old person's instrument. That's kind of, it's kind of rewarding knowing that, yeah, there's a long road, but the road is the journey and the taking, taking your time and you, things will get better. You will get better and it'll be worth it down the track. So Russ, really enjoyed that mate thank you so much for taking the time out and um thanks to dennis and your daughter too for that last tune really enjoyed that as well um once again if you're not a subscriber to the patreon or if you're not a subscriber to the podcast please hit subscribe on whatever podcast app you listen on that'd be great if you could leave us a review that would be even better that's really really great if you could do that and finally, if you really want to chip in, you were moved by this week's episode and you're looking forward to more episodes, please head over to patreon.com forward slash Balarney Pilgrims. Right. Um, I think that's everything. Hopefully I haven't missed anything. Catch you next week. Bye bye. This project is supported by the City of Greater Geelong through its COVID-19 Arts, Culture and Heritage Recovery Grants Programme. Anya bye ya. Up. Hop!